On October 26, 2017, J. Daryl Charles, contributing editor of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy, and the journal Touchstone, as well as an affiliated scholar of the John Jay Institute, delivered a lecture entitled Natural Law and the Protestant Reformation. The lecture was delivered as part of the Evenings at Acton series presented by the Acton Institute at the Mark Murray Auditorium in the Acton Building in downtown Grand Rapids, Michigan. Here now with his address is J. Daryl Charles. If you do any reading of late medieval, early modern, or so-called Reformation history these days, you stumble upon a notable tendency, and probably some of you have on your own. Many book titles utilize the plural Reformations rather than the singular. What do you think might be going on here? It seems that more recent historiography is attentive to the fact that there is not just one Reformation or Reform movement in the period of, say, 1400 to 1600, but rather multiple Reformations, even when they might receive short shrift. Full disclosure, and I have something uh, which Trey missed as he was uh, following me uh, with detectives trying to get information. I grew up in the Anabaptist tradition, which some of you probably would find hard to believe. I doubt that there are many Anabaptists here in Dutch uh, country, uh, in the audience anyway tonight. And though the radical reformation to which Anabaptism belongs is one of the offshoots of 16th century Protestant reform, it was viewed, dust off your history here a little bit, it was viewed by both Catholics and fellow Protestants at times as deviant and heretical. In that day, given its rejection of the church's authority and its frequent rejection of civil authority. So I ask you the question of which reformation are we speaking the Lutheran, the Reformed, the Radical, the Counter-Reformation. What about forerunners to the Reformation? What about, say, the conciliar movement of the 15th century or even the Fifth Lateran Council, which ran from 1512 to 1517, but which had the misfortune of being interrupted by the so-called Luther Affair? even though it had much of the language of reformatio in its pronouncements. And what do we do with 14th and 15th century reformers, such as Wycliffe and Huff, Huss? How about 16th century reformers? Take, for example, Cardinal Reginald Pohl. Boy, I'm asking you to dust off a lot here in terms of history. Reginald Pohl, one of three legates appointed by Pope Paul III, to oversee the Council of Trent and whose personal, whose personal affirmations of justification by faith over works resulted in accusations of heresy. How about that for a, a tidbit? Huh? Or how about Erasmus? Or how about Johann von Staupitz? <laughs> Who was he? You, you, I can tell by your grins. You were, yes, uh, the, the vicar and mentor to Martin Luther. Or others whose views on justification bore similarities to some of the uh, Protestant reformers. Alas, there are many reformations, many reform movements both before and after 1517. Thus, we need not be too Luther-centric 
as traditional scholarship has tended to be. The common perception is that the 15th century was the quiet before the storm, and guess who uh, set the storm in motion? Yes, Martin Luther. The alternative perspective, one that I prefer, accentuates, shall we say, the social history of uh, the period leading up to and also after Luther's revolt, which, in my view, helps to bring balance to our perspective. Second full disclosure, or maybe this is the third, sorry about that so early. My own view is that of the church historian Yaroslav Pelikan, who years ago described the Protestant Reformation as a, do you recall his denomination, that is his descriptor, tragic necessity. A necessity because of the vulnerable condition of the late medieval church, but infinitely tragic, because wherever Christian unity is undercut, our witness to the world is diminished. Do you believe that? Thus, the occasion of the 500th anniversary should temper both our celebration and our lament. Today, as we commemorate the 500th anniversary of the second major schism in Christendom, where do we stand? Where do we stand? What hasn't changed since 1517 is the fact of Islam's missionary-mindedness and its, at times, uh, shall we say, militant tendencies. That was true with the first schism in the 11th century. It was true in the 16th century, and it is true today. What has changed perhaps can be summarized as being twofold. One, most European nations today seem to be running as fast as they can to rid themselves of their dreaded Christian heritage, are they not? And uh, I think it's fair to say that Europe's religion is a secular, a militant secularism. Second, what also has changed, but for the positive, is the very fact that we are here together, together tonight, together in general, celebrating, insofar as we are broadly, broadly reconciled. And to appreciate that, to appreciate that specific, the context in which uh, early 16th century reformed emerged, consider how one renowned Reformation scholar uh, puts it. He writes this, among the literally thousands of letters from that time I've read in the course of my research, many contain the simple three-word postscript, burn after reading. What a difference 500 years makes, does it not? (laughs) Let us count some of the ways. The Second Vatican Council emphasized, among other things, a, shall we say, rediscovery of the priesthood of all the baptized. And John, please correct me uh, where I'm wrong. In addition to an understanding of the church's work as service, as well as the importance of religious freedom. Many of us uh, are familiar with efforts which began in the 1980s 80s by Catholic and Lutheran theologians on the occasion of the 450th anniversary of the Augsburg Confession to reconsider the doctrine of justification, which resulted in a number of important volumes, two of which are noted on the back of your, of your handout in the bibliography, The Condemnations of the Reformation Era and Justification by Faith. And most of us are familiar, probably, with the Joint Declaration on the Doctrine of Justification, which was signed by the Lutheran World Federation and the Catholic Church in 1999. And that, of course, built on the 1980s framework, did it not? As a result, today, it would seem that Catholics 
can regard Martin Luther's reforming efforts with greater openness than, than seemed ever possible earlier. This becomes apparent when you consider official statements by the Catholic Church in the 1980s, including those of John Paul II, who is a bit of a hero for me, which acknowledged Luther as, quote, witness to the gospel. In addition, Benedict XVI also recognized the importance of Luther's theology. Uh, as recently as 2011 in Erfurt, uh, a city in Germany, where there is an Augustinian friary and in which Luther himself lived for about six years. And, of course, we'd be remiss not to mention the recent document published by the Vatican. I'm not sure how interested uh, many or all of you are in things ecumenical. Uh, But the Conflict to Communion document with the subtitle Lutheran Catholic Common Commemoration of the Reformation in 2017, noted as well in your bibliography. And ladies and gentlemen, if that is not enough, lo and behold, the Vatican announced in January of this year that it would be issuing a stamp with a picture of guess who on it. Yes! Good Lord, what is this world coming to? (laughs) Well, this in part is where we stand tonight. And because of the convergence taking place in our lifetime, and I find that exciting, there's much reason to rejoice Many of you probably are asking personally, Daryl, what interest do you have in the 500th anniversary, fully apart from my deep uh, ecumenical sympathies? Well, part of that is rooted in the fact that I married into German culture. I began married life living and studying in West Germany during the 1980s. What were you doing? I'm drawn to tonight's subject and our special guest for several reasons. I will tell you this. This individual, it is no exaggeration to say, is a forgotten figure. Poor Sarah Aldrich was just so up in arms because, Daryl, aren't you going to identify who this mystery figure is for the purposes of promotion? (laughs) And it's no exaggeration to say that he is the statesman and official representative of the Protestant Reformation. Moreover, and for our present purposes this evening, he wrote more on law and natural law than any of the Protestant reformers, including Calvin, who had a background and training in law. Finally, it needs to be pointed out that though Lutheran, this forgotten figure, had a notable ecumenical streak, very unlike his purest Lutheran brethren. And sadly, at the end of his life, he bore a lot of pain and sorrow and frustration because of fellow Lutherans who were purer than thou, and who resented or misinterpreted his ecumenical uh, distinctives. Tonight, then, I shall attempt to blend two uh, two tasks or assignments or topics, and I just want to emphasize both were assigned to me, so if you don't like it or if I've bitten off too much, uh, I'm going to pass the blame on. They were assigned. Natural law, and I do it, though, with joy, and the 500th anniversary. I do this with fear and trembling, and uh, let me just be honest and say that's like being asked to talk about the Atlantic Ocean and the United Nations and do justice to both of those in a few minutes. And I exaggerate only slightly. Before paying homage, though, to our forgotten guest of honor, who will remain nameless, though you have it before you, it behooves me to say something about the present cultural moment and about the sorry state of contemporary Protestantism, both of which uh, are, what shall we say, quite needy. 
uh, a br first a brief word about the culture. Once upon a time, you could argue that basic moral principles are the same for everyone, everywhere, and at all times. <laughs> Once upon a time. Not today. Quite simply, the challenge before us socially, culturally, and politically is that we live in a period of, let's call it, post-consensus. Sixty years ago, the Catholic theologian John Courtney Murray, whose perhaps most famous book is surely on your shelves at home and certainly here, uh, we hold these truths for which he's perhaps best known. Today, the fact is we hold no truths as a society. We profess nothing as a culture. And those who dare, those who dare profess that in public are hate-filled, bigoted, and intolerant, are they not? <laughs> we plead guilty. So the question then is, what language, what language do we use as we live and move among our contemporaries today in a post-consensus cultural climate? How do we engage in moral reasoning with our contemporaries? How do we even, I don't think I'm exaggerating, how do we even get to first base? It seems to me that the challenge is enormous. Part of my response to that, and it wasn't meant solely to be rhetorical, would be this. Yes, the fall, human fallenness, has damaged hum human nature. It has marred us but it has not eliminated the image of God, and I want to stress that uh, with great certainty. That is an important distinction, that sin, dark, much as it does darken human nature, does not eliminate the image of God in people. And I, I say it in this way. If nothing is self-evident, after the fall, good and evil, just and unjust, can be, still are self-evident for people. And I say this, if nothing is self-evident, then nothing is obligatory in life. And if nothing is obligatory, then all, all, all conceptions of value simply crumble. I would also suggest that we need to develop the art of moral persuasion. And in our day, I would say in our day we need to utilize what I would call backdoor strategies, that is to say marshalling evidence in people's lives of moral reality and helping them see the contradiction of their profession over against how they really live their lives. For example, and we can bat this around in the Q&A to which I greatly look forward, one doesn't have to be religious, one doesn't have to be Dutch Calvinist or Dutch Catholic to intuit the reality of the golden rule, which is do to others as you would want them to do to you, and do not do to others what you would not want done to you. Even the atheist, even the non-religious person intuits and will acknowledge the truth of that ethical standard. Guess what? That is the natural law at work within people. Now a brief word on contemporary Protestantism, and this is part two uh, on your outline if you're following along. In notable contrast to splintered Protestantism and the countless theological fads that are found within her borders, contemporary Protestants, who otherwise have very little in common, do share common ground in their general opposition to natural law thinking. 
and among more theologically orthodox Protestants, this opposition arises from a cluster of concerns, related concerns, and perhaps understandable at that. Among them, the worry that natural law thinking fails to take seriously the human condition and sinfulness, or the worry that misguided trust is placed in the powers of human reason, which has been debilitated by the fall, or that ethical norms, as revealed in the Old and New Testaments, are distinct, or that natural law theory is insufficiently Christocentric and grace-centered. And, of course, in many Protestant circles, natural law thinking is viewed, therefore, as a Catholic thing. And while I'll not, I will not this evening analyze a host of influential thinkers who have encouraged, yes, this rejection, in the mid to late 20th century, one finds vehement opposition uh, in the thinking and writings of Protestants like Karl Barth, Helmut Thielicke, Paul Lehman, Jacques Edel, uh, John Howard Yoder, who comes out of the Mennonite tradition name, and in closer to our day, in our day, Stanley Hauerwas at Duke, just to name a few. And for this reason, sadly, one is hard-pressed to name one, one Protestant theological ethicist who uh, has furthered and advanced a natural law thinking. This is, uh, however, offset by the fact that happily there are signs here and there that some Protestants are rethinking their understanding of natural law. This doubtless is due to meaningful dialogue, ecumenical dialogue with Roman Catholics as we witness the collapse of moral norms in the West. But however deeply entrenched opposition among Protestants is to natural law thinking, it cannot be traced to the magisterial reformers themselves who maintain continuity with their Catholic counterparts. Yes, it is true that they champion a variety of grace and, and faith and justification in opposition to what they thought were either lax or imbalances, but they maintain continuity with Roman Catholics in the, as their writings all indicate. And it's accurate to insist that 16th century Reformation controversies in their nature were foremost theological and ecclesiastical, not ethical. To the surprise of many, Luther, Calvin, Swingley, Bucer, Bullinger, and others affirmed the natural law even when it was not a major focus of their writings. And that is part of the problem, the fact that none of the magisterial reformers develops natural law thinking in any sort of systematic way, with one exception. And he is our forgotten guest of this evening, part three. Generally and sadly, in my view, Philip Melanchthon is forgotten when we speak of the Protestant reformers. He disappears, as it were, in Luther's shadow. And consider, by way of example, various titles uh, devoted to him through the years. Melanchthon, the quiet reformer. And these are noted, by the way, on your bibliography. Philip Melanchthon, reformer without honor. The unknown Melanchthon, or Melanchthon, alien or ally, question mark. <laughs> Melanchthon indeed seems then to languish in the shadow, not only Luther, but other well-known reformers. But this, tonight I wish to uh, suggest, is an injustice and should not be. It was not Luther, but Melanchthon, who determined fully what the exact consistency of Lutheranism was to be, stated one very important German intellectual historian. 
How does that uh, declaration strike you, by the way? Not Luther, but Melanchthon determined its character. It was Melanchthon who was responsible for the education of a new theological generation, for the formulation of all official utterances. He was the chief teacher and instructor, what someone has called the scholarly publicist, the theological diplomat of the early Reformation. And it was interesting that Melanchthon uh, wrote the very first reform, uh, systematic reform theology, the Loci Communis, several of of editions of which are noted on the back of your handout. Uh, and listen to this, 51 editions of which, Loci Communis, 51 editions of which were published in his lifetime. Extraordinary, eh? In fact, as the main public defender of Luther's cause, Melanchthon had a hand in all the official confessional writings of the Protestant Reformation. And while in the eyes of many, the confessor, Luther, is greater than the professor, Melanchthon, the Protestant Reformation could not have been established or carried on without the latter. Our forgotten guest participated in almost every theological colloquy in his day. Luther did not. In terms of sheer giftedness, Philip Melanchthon was a prodigy. In the aftermath of his own father's death when he was nine years old, Melanchthon was fortunate to have a great uncle on his mother's side, Johann Reuchlin, a renowned Hebraist, Hebraist who took great interest in him because of his extraordinary linguistic talents as a child. In fact, this great uncle bestowed on Philip a new name, uh, his family name, Schwarzad, which means black earth, suggesting that he came, that his, his lineage was that of, uh, of blacksmiths and armor makers and armor bearers. His great uncle changed his name from Schwarzad to Melanchthon, which happens to be the Greek equivalent thereof. And by the way, renaming was a custom that uh, Renaissance and humanist scholars uh, engaged in at that time. Philip enrolled at the University of Heidelberg at the age of close to Carter, 12 years old. Yes, you heard me correctly, where he studied literature, theology, philosophy, and science, believe it or not, and graduated with a Bachelor of Liberal Arts degree at the age of <clears throat> 14. He then took a Master of Liberal Arts from the University of Tübingen at the age of 17, that's right, where he was subsequently on the faculty for four years, if you can believe that or not. So in 1518, at the ripe age of 21, Melanchthon arrives at the University of Wittenberg, appointed as professor of Greek at the request of Prince Frederick and at the recommendation of his great uncle, Reuchlin. Supremely interesting and, and, for our purposes, illuminating is the fact that Luther and Melanchthon maintained the highest respect for one another through the years. Luther said of him that he was a young man in body, but a venerable old gray beard in intellect. In the year of Luther's absence from the university, he noted, you, Philip, surpass me in theology and you succeed me as Elisha followed Elijah with a double portion of the spirit, alluding, of course, to 2 Kings 2. Interesting. While Melanchthon learned the gospel from Luther, Luther learned the Greek New Testament and St. Paul, particularly from Philip Melanchthon. And given Luther's temperament and tendencies, namely to criticize 
and break fellowship, <laughs> it is remarkable that Luther never publicly criticized Melanchthon. And given Luther's tendencies, that is remarkable. It's accurate to say that Luther's work, in effect, simply cannot be properly understood and appreciated apart from Melanchthon, who was many years his junior. By 1525, that is seven years after he arrived at Wittenberg, Melanchthon had received special status at the university so that he could basically teach any course that he wanted. Formerly, he was part of both the theological and the liberal arts faculties. Luther worried that other universities would steal him. <laughs> so great was his gifting. So he pressed upon and prevailed upon Prince Frederick, of, who, of course, was the patron of the university, to pay him more, which... Uh, Prince Frederick ended up doing. And in truth, other universities did try to woo him away. Cambridge, for example, at one time expressed desire to have him come and be their Regis Professor of Divinity, a chair, by the way, as many of you know, that still exists today. And uh, Philip was instrumental then in, in designing curricula for other universities, not just his own as well. He wrote textbooks on not only theology, but get this, Latin and Greek grammar, textbooks, mind you, rhetoric, philosophy, ethics, psychology, and history. He edited and offered commentary on numerous classical authors, including Cicero, Aristotle, Ptolemy, Virgil, Hesiod, and Demosthenes. Wow. In his own lifetime and not posthumously, this for me is significant, Melanchthon was accorded the remarkable title of Preceptor Germaniae. Somebody dust off your German and interpret for me, please. The preceptor, the preceptor or the teacher of Germany in his lifetime. This moniker is deserved for several reasons. First, his teaching style was infectious, as indicated by eyewitness accounts that his university lectures regularly drew 600 people. This, mind you, in a day when there were barely over 300 students total at the young university. And on one occasion, 2,000 people were said to have attended, including princes and royalty, in addition to regular students. In his table talks, four years before his death, Luther offered this observation, and he said, if anyone wishes to become a theologian, he should do two things. One, start with the Bible. Two, read Philip's Loci Communis. No better book has been written after Holy Scripture than Philip's. He expresses himself more precisely than I do when he argues and instructs. I'm garrulous and rhetorical. <laughs> Indeed, we might uh, add Luther was bellicose. Melanchthon, by contrast, was irenic and far less polemical. Second reason for his teacher of Germany reputation, the sheer output of his work, as I've suggested already. He trained hundreds of teachers, wrote textbooks and grammars, as I noted, wrote biblical commentaries, and taught university courses ranging from, get this, Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, to astronomy, history, and philosophy, to rhetoric, poetry, and medicine, to, of course, theology. And lest this wide smattering might suggest to you in the audience that he was a butterfly, the truth is it reveals his basic assumptions about theology and human knowledge. That is, a Christian worldview must be coherent, making connections to all of life. 
Third justification for his being called the teacher of Germany is the fact that Melanchthon was the architect of the German public education system, about which I'll have a comment to say in a minute. One of the things that Luther admired in Melanchthon was order, order in his thinking, order in life, order in his theology. Order, after all, is part of creation in God's nature, which applies to politics, to law, to married life, to theology, to everything. Christ redeems and restores order that is lost through sin. Therefore, law and particularly natural law for Melanchthon are an important part of human existence. Here Melanchthon is very Thomistic. That is, he insists that we can know of God by God's, shall we say, effects in the cosmos and creation. And then this allows us to reason back to the source, the lawgiver, through the laws and through the law of nature. In spite of vastly different temperaments, giftings, and callings, Melanchthon and Luther were united on what they believe were theological non-negotiables. For example, Melanchthon shared Luther's uh, law gospel distinction, his recognition of human depravity, a commitment to uh, scriptural authority, justification by faith, and a two-kingdom framework with its understanding of what we might call a sort of sphere sovereignty, which recognizes the three estates of family, church, and the state. The two also shared the Pauline notion that a God-given awareness of moral reality through the natural law is implanted in the heart of all, and that this law written on the heart, as Paul describes it, defines our basic uh, obligations to God, nature, neighbor, forgive me, and self. And both believe that the, uh, the Ten Commandments, as well as the Beatitudes and the Golden Rule, give concrete expression to the natural law. The two men differ theologically in several areas, and while I won't develop these in great detail now, uh, perhaps perhaps this would make for some interesting discussion uh, during the question and answer time, if you'd like. For example, uh, they had slightly different views of human freedom and the will. They also differed somewhat on the Eucharist and, and Christ's physical presence. In addition, for Melanchthon, faith and reason support each other, and, and though distinct, they nevertheless are symbiotic in their relationship. For Luther, apart from a theology of the cross, reason is thought to be fundamentally hostile to God. And most of us, of course, have heard his famous declaration, the whole of Aristotle is to theology as darkness is to light. <laughs> Nothing subtle about Luther. Yet another difference between the two Uh, which is ecclesial in nature, is the matter of the church's unity. Luther the prophet views reconciliation as compromise. Melanchthon, in contrast, wishes to see concord and healing, though without compromising. And one uh, last difference, a significant one, I think, is that of good works. Yes, Luther believed in the importance of good works in terms of obedience, but interestingly, he rejected the message of what letter in the New Testament? James. He also wanted to exclude uh, Jude uh, from the canon as well as the New Testament apocalypse. But James was particularly problematic. Why? Two fundamental related uh, notions. First of all, it's not enough Christocentric for him. 
And let's be aware of this liberating realization that he had through justification by faith, through grace. And uh, the second was that James supposedly is denying or countering the Pauline emphasis on justification by faith alone. Because James is pressing the argument, is he not, show me your faith by your, yeah, verify it. I think it's safe to say that Melanchthon brings the necessary corrective to Luther in that regard. In terms of personality and temperament, Melanchthon and Luther could not have been more different. While complementary, the two were what we might call uh, unequal yoke fellows. (laughs) One was vehement, the other pacific. One pastoral, the the other scholarly. One was an apostle to the commoner, the other an apostle of higher education. One was militant, the other moderate and conciliatory. One was a prophetic innovator, the other a systematician. One was obstinate, at times even rude, crude, and uncharitable. The other judicious and more restrained, willing to dialogue with those who disagree with him or his enemies. As noted, Melanchthon devotes more attention to law and moral philosophy than any other reformer, and I think there are several reasons for that, perhaps important to identify. First, this is an evidence of his being an integrated uh, Renaissance man, can we say, an integration of thinking and his theology into all realms of life due to the liberal arts. Second, as the ethicist of the Protestant Reformation, as someone has tagged him, Melanchthon saw the need to keep theology and philosophy wed. How often are the two driven apart? Huh? How often are faith and reason, are revelation and reason uh, split or divorced? Uh, Melanchthon would have none of it. And in addition to those burdens, he wrestled through much of his life with what he viewed as a, an antinomian or law-denying version of the gospel, if that makes sense to you. On the one hand, that law-denying tendency among Christians, and on the other hand, of course, uh, his burden for a works righteousness. While philosophy and reason alone cannot justify before a holy God, he was willing to acknowledge, he did believe that they can explain law and, interestingly, our innate awareness of it, the natural law. And in this event, perhaps it's, it's important to note the events of 1520s, uh, which 500 years are so far into us uh, and removed. But I speak here of the so-called peasant revolts during that decade. And these illustrated for Melanchthon the tragedy of a lawless understanding of Christian faith. And they persuaded him of the need to teach and write on law and theology in order to Uh, provide necessary restraints on human nature and sin, on sectarian fragmentation, and on social turbulence. And he worried much throughout his career about these antinomian tendencies that would tend to accompany, accompany these outbreaks of religious enthusiasm. In my view, both in Melanchthon's day and ours, the mistaken attitude is widespread that Christian faith is free from the law, Maybe not in Holland, Michigan, maybe not in Grand Rapids, but where I come from and where I travel, that's very often the case. I'm dismayed by that sort of thinking. And, of course, there are two brands of lawless Christianity, aren't there? 
On the one side, there's a withdrawal from the world and a sort of denial of, of the importance of social institutions and social arrangements. On the other side, of course, we have license and wrong use of freedom. Melanchthon's response was that both law and gospel continually need to be pre- preached. Nature and grace, they're comp- complementary. As Aquinas argued, grace completes nature, does it not? Therefore, law is not only a necessary preamble to the gospel, which it is, that much we can grant, but it continues to awaken within believers a consciousness of sin without which true piety and virtue cannot take root. For this reason, then, Melanchthon points out that Jesus reminds his audience, do not suppose that I have come to what? The law. Abolish the law. I've not come to abolish it, but fulfill it. Matthew 5, 17. Thank you. And Melanchthon also joins Calvin and Luther in distinguishing between three types of the law. You've heard this off in the Old Testament, haven't Ceremonial, judicial, and moral. And of the three, the la- only the latter is abiding, as the Decalogue illustrates. In his Loci Communis, Melanchthon acknowledges that a person cannot keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, and yet still by what he often in his writings described as the natural light, by one's natural reasoning, a person can know of the inner law of God. This complementary relationship then between reason, not a misplaced trust in reason, but a complementary relationship between reason and revelation for him are indications that theology and philosophy need to be kept together. Theology enlarges and completes, shall we say, our natural knowledge of the creator. Consistent with most of the reformers, Melanchthon identifies law according to three types, divine, natural, and human or civil. Divine law, of course, that that eternal and immovable judgment which is impressed on human minds, which lay out for us an understanding of what we are to aspire to, what we should do, what we should not do. Human law, by contrast, he notes, only demands or forbids certain external works. Interesting way of describing civil law. The natural law, very important, uh, reconciles the two. The natural law for him is the likeness of God. So he roots it in the image of God, the imago dei. In its essence, this moral knowledge is self-evident, becoming or informing all human beings of the difference between honorable and shameful, just and unjust, good and evil. The voice of the natural law has sounded since the beginning of creation, he says, uh, before the time of Moses and will remain forever. Several things, in my view, are significant about Melanchthon's understanding and representation of natural law. I'd simply like to identify them because I think this is where he makes a contribution. One is that he anchors it in the Imago Dei, which, yes, marred, nevertheless cannot be removed or eliminated. The image of God is not removed in our contemporaries. The fact that human beings have suppressed this knowledge is no argument against the natural law, he believes. Even though it's true that human nature is deformed and corrupted, knowledge still remains. It is not entirely extinct, he says. Another important feature is his pedagogical function of the natural law. That is, not only does it restrain, but it also guides and protects and assists us. And then finally, 
he develops the use of the natural law for criminal justice. And he identifies three functions which may seem very modern. They are. Uh, uh, natural law has a retributive, deterrent, and rehabilitative function. Where have we heard that before? Well, in early English and in uh, American penology. In approaching the home stretch this evening, I'd like to ask the question, what might we learn from the forgotten reformer? And there I've uh, noted several things on your handout. First of all, to me it's utterly fascinating that Philip Melanchthon was not trained in theology, yet he learned it and ended up becoming the official representative of the Protestant Reformation. Often throughout the years I've asked my question, or I've told my students this. I said, the study of theology is literally a matter of life and death. And, of course, their reaction is, come on, Dr. Charles, get off it. You know, what is your problem? But, you know, very often by the end of the semester, hopefully they've swung more to my side of the family. That is commendable in Melanchthon. Second, uh, among most historiographers of the Reformation, uh, there is the view that Melanchthon was weak-willed and timid compared to Luther, right? In my reading of him, I think uh, that's not the case, but rather he was simply more erenic, far less polemical, and he had an ecumenical vision for that day, which was significant. And for that, I commend, by the way, the Acton Institute because I see that vision, that underpinning uh, to their work. Uh, You are to be commended. Third, Something in Melanchthon was infectious if, in fact, 600 people regularly are attending his <laughs> lectures. That in a day when, mind you, only 300 students are there at Wittenberg. Yeah. Uh, it seems to me that vision is, as the saying goes, caught, not taught. There was something infectious about his vision and the way that he communicated. And not only was the University of Wittenberg Becoming a trendsetter was brand new when he arrived, but it ended up in decades becoming a trendsetter. And it was uh, as it was, Melanchthon was instrumental in designing the faculty for a new university, the University of Marburg, which was the first official Protestant university in Germany. And he helped redesign curricula at three other universities, Heidelberg, Tübingen, Leipzig, not a bad calling card, I would say. Fourth, knowledge, as Melanchthon knew it, is not fragmentary in the Christian scheme of things. Rather, it's unitary. That's very different from how education is done and proceeds today, is it not? All of life, all of knowledge has a unity in the Christian understanding of reality. Fifth, as I've already emphasized, reason supplements and is not abolished by revelation. The two must not be divorced. Here I'm thinking of John Paul's last major encyclical before his health went downhill, Fides at Ratio, Faith and Reason. And the very first statement in that encyclical begins with faith and reason being like two wings of a bird in its ascent in the pursuit of truth. We dare not separate them. Sixth, I've I've tried to explain the importance of natural law in his thinking. Why that focus in Melanchthon? Because moral law is implanted in us through the image of God. That's very, very important. And he intuited that discerning the moral underpinnings of law, without that, the common good simply collapses and civil society is important. I'm sorry, it's impossible without understanding the moral underpinnings of law. To his great credit, Melanchthon used his influence as a theologian 
to inform social and political change. Might we also do the same? Might the church as well? And then a final application, which has enormous ramifications for our day. There's a tendency, especially among religious people, to separate charity from law and justice. Law and justice very often are thought to be cold, right, harsh, impersonal, while charity is warm, personal, forgiving. That is a false dichotomy, balderdash, and we need to prevent that sort of split in our thinking. Uh, Not only Melanchthon, but New Testament writers like James and Paul say, love fulfills the law. Thank you very much. I conclude. And I conclude with a a remembrance of a very important conversation, a debate, actually, that took place just over a decade ago in Germany. It it was sponsored by the Catholic Academy of Bavaria. Uh, 2004 was the actual year between one of the world's most renowned contemporary philosophers, a fellow by the name of Jürgen Habermas, and a fellow you probably not heard of, Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger, about to become Pope Benedict XVI. Just kidding. And their assignment to debate the topic, how about this for a topic, the pre-political moral foundations of a free society. Habermas, who describes himself as tone-deaf to religion, surely surprised many in the audience. And since, by the way, that became, that was published in book form. It's on your uh, uh, bibliography. I think the title there is The Dialectics of Secularization. It's a very short volume. Uh, You'll enjoy reading it. Benedict, of course, was well-placed to be able to respond. And what was interesting was that both men had significant realms of agreement. And both agreed that we prob- it's probably good that we enter into what they called a post-secular period. This coming from uh, Jürgen Habermas. Other points of uh, agreement summarized by Benedict were these. There are pathologies of both religion and reason. And for that reason, the two dare not be uh, disengaged. Also, Benedict noted, freedom without law equates to anarchy, and law without the religious moral impulse becomes unjust and totalitarianism, totalitarian. Therefore, Benedict concluded, the importance of the natural law in bridging church and society. The importance of natural law in bridging church and society. In order, why? To have common moral discourse by which to debate things that really matter. I would argue that in periods of social cultural upheaval, there is often a renewal of natural law thinking. There was a renewal in Philip Melanchthon's Generations Day Uh, At the same time that he was teaching at Wittenberg, a Spanish-Dominican theologian by the name of Francisco de Vitoria, if you're a poli-sci or historian, uh, scientist or historian, you remember that name, part of the New World Discoveries. And not only he, but Francisco Suarez, a generation later, had the audacity when both Spain and Portugal were coming and vanquishing and abusing Native Americans He had the audacity to come back and say to both king and pope, you dare not, you dare not, on the basis of the natural law, require their uh, force, their uh, conversion. And they, too, in spite of the fact that they are difficult to understand with their customs, they must be treated as human beings. Human dignity, natural law of God, uh, a natural law uh, within the heart. A generation later, somebody by the name of Hugo Grotius, perhaps known to us as the 
so-called father of natural law, uh, father of international law, I should say, emphasized natural law thinking in the very tragic uh, 30 years war. Another generation, the founders and framers of our nation, found a new reason to rediscover the natural law. What was it for them? Basically twofold. Uh, the ability to avoid tyranny in this new uh, experiment in order to liberty, and also to understand religious tolerance. And let us be honest, that was a, an understanding for them that was gradual. It was by no means perfect. So every generation must rediscover the moral foundations of law and politics. What I didn't tell you at the beginning and what Trey, through his research, did not tell you was that my father-in-law, a German, as you piece together, spent all five years of the Second World War serving the German military in Poland. He served for the German Bundesbahn, the German railroad. And you know what his task was? Five years in Poland serving as a railroad car switcher in Poland. The generation of my father-in-law resulted in many emigres coming uh, to the U.S., many of these people ended up becoming very influential natural law theorists, names of which would, would be known to us tonight. The Universal Declaration Human Rights emphasis after the war in the late 40s, which we take for granted today, I would argue was the byproduct of this renewal of natural law thinking. Every generation, including the present generation, needs a new reason to study natural law. And I would say that Philip Melanchthon, though neither a prince nor a politician, understood that and bore witness to those realities, not just as a theologian, not just in the classroom, but as someone who saw the effects, the effects, the symptoms of our faith necessarily being felt in the culture. Tonight, I simply want to say again, thank you to the Acton Institute for your kind invitation. Thank you for coming out, being a part of this evening. And I just want to say, may the Lord bless uh, you as Acton in terms of your mission. And may the Lord bless each of you individually as we seek to bear witness and offer a robust testimony to our Christian faith in a hostile and increasingly hostile cultural challenge before us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, I'm really glad I was here. Oh, Seriously. Um, the question, I, you know, Melanchthon is a very prolific letter writer. And, in fact, I've Good seen charts where they say Luther didn't write the letters. Melanchthon <laughs> is the one who wrote the letters to all of the different people around the greater what is now Germany area, um, negotiating, discussing, talking tremendously influential hmm. why is it you have a carryover of Luther into the United States in terms of knowledge of him as a Protestant Reformation figure there's a Luther College, there's a Wartburg College <laughs> there's no Melanchthon College <laughs> why does Melanchthon get lost oh boy, great question it is the question isn't it, why uh, one could offer, and again, I'm not speaking authoritatively because I'm, I'm asking as I'm reading, as I'm researching, as I'm, even as I'm talking, I'm thinking, what a, what a deficiency and uh, to our great uh, lack 
Probably personality and temperament have something to do with it. You know, uh, I made that distinction briefly in passing, and I do think that is, it's not the total explanation, but I think that is partial justification, yes. Uh, Luther, uh, Luther's liberation was dramatic, right? It didn't happen overnight. I don't mean that dramatic in that sense, but it was dramatic. And so the role that was accorded Luther, Luther was 15, 14 years older than Melanchthon. Uh, I think the role that was accorded him in the beginnings you know, had something to do with it. His uh, temperament, his uh, uh, being an extrovert, being uh, not caring what others thought. <laughs> now that can work both ways. <laughs> it can be a, a vice and a virtue, <laughs> can it not? And it's true that being weak-willed or quiet or introverted, that can work both ways too. I would choose rather, though, not to make it a vice or a virtue issue, but make it simply a difference of temperament. And let's face it, a temperament there was very, very important. Yeah. Uh, but that doesn't, it doesn't explain the, because you know, the very fact that Melanchthon, who was out representing the Reformation cause at official meetings and colloquies, uh, he should be getting more of the uh, press, so to speak. So I'm, uh, I'm wondering uh, why. I, met, or I alluded to the fact that late in his uh, academic career, uh, and he died in 1560, Luther in 1546, uh, Melanchthon was caught up in a lot of controversy that had to do with Lutheran theological purism. Yeah. And so, in a sense, he went out on not a good note. That makes not that Luther went out, you know, on Broadway, but I, uh, I will. So that may have part of it. Uh, that may have to do with part of it as well. Yeah. So that's my poor attempt to try to make sense of it. I, I just don't know. Uh, yeah. I, I'd be curious as to why you might think, though, that there's been such a, yeah. Really a a distinction between the way they've been recognized or not. Mm. Yeah. That's why I am. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I'd be interested to hear from anybody else, too. Thank you. Yes, sir. There comes a microphone. There. Once you say that somewhere that God willed it, that you have certain talents, and the underlings have certain talents, mm-hmm. but together you make a very, very potent whole, mm-hmm. wholesome. Because I, I think that happens to a lot of uh, people like, say, Einstein or Galileo, did they do it all? But they were the front person, but somebody was there Great point. Helping. Sure, sure. sure. Great point. Uh, yeah. Certainly legitimate. Mm-hmm. Yes, ma'am. Even in Germany, that seems to be true. I mean, it is. Go, you know, to the museums and, you yes. know, Luther's home and, I mean, there was a Melanchthon home also. Yes. But Very, You've been there? Yes. Great. Good for you. Were you there this year? A uh, year ago. Great. But, but anyway, I mean, unless we miss the Melanchthon in other cities, even in Germany, and you're saying he was a teacher of Germany, mm. they lost it too. <laughs> yes, interesting. Has anybody been to Wittenberg this year, uh, the commemoration year? 2017, just curious. I'm so glad she mentioned that. If you go, uh, you, you, it would be all about the celebrations. Were, uh, my, my wife and I were there uh, in May, I guess it was, 
And all the celebrating was Luther-centric. <laughs> all. And I'm not crying about that. It's not... Uh, but I, and I wouldn't, maybe my, the use of the term injustice, maybe that's a little strong. But it's still, you're so correct it, to this day. Even though uh, Melanchthon, as, as noted, was really the architect of the German public education system. Yeah. Now, you and I might argue, well, that's not necessarily good. Look at what uh, the German university did, you know, beginning in the 18, well, you know, that's a topic for another, <laughs> another night. Uh, so, differences of vision, differences of gifting, yeah, but a strong difference in terms of how they're appreciated. Yes, sir? And part of it's retail. Part of it's retail between Melanchthon and Luther. Um, the question I had was... There you go. Oh, thanks. You, you mentioned uh, the debate that Benedict had prior to becoming Pope uh, with, I don't remember the name of, of secular Jürgen Habermas. Okay. Yes. Um, and the point you made was that uh, Benedict embraced natural law as a means of a go-between between the church and the secular world. To what extent do you think that's still viable when we have the secular world marrying men and LGBT? And I mean, they don't accept natural right. law anymore. Great, great question. And that's a frustration that... Uh, eats away at us, does it not? Uh, I will be the first to uh, acknowledge that. I think natural law thinking, how, and I'm, as you're talking, uh, my friend, I'm, my m mind is going back to an uh, op-ed piece that appeared in the journal First Things several years ago by a David Bentley Hart. Perhaps the name is familiar, not familiar to many of you. Uh, he was basically moaning or bemoaning the fact that we have far too much faith placed in natural law thinking as a means of, of uh, having debate with our secular counterparts uh, because it just won't get it. <laughs> that was his point. Uh, he was not in opposition to it philosophically, just pragmatically. Uh, it, it's not going to do it. And I think that uh, resonated with many people. My response to that uh, was this. You're right if you're basically saying, this is hard work, <laughs> the challenge before us is great, or moral persuasion in a culture that doesn't want to even do basic moral reasoning is difficult, if that's what you're saying, yes. Uh, and the cost for doing that, you know, I was kind of deadpanning and, and uh, stereotyping earlier, we are now the intolerant, hate-filled bigots, aren't we, of the... Because you affirm something that's enduring, you are automatically... So in a sense, we have got to defend ourselves. We have got to deal with that before we can even get to the issues that really count. Uh, but in response, sorry, I'm talking here in circles. I guess in part, I would say this. Yes, you're right if you're acknowledging with the rest of us, it's difficult, and it's going to get more difficult, more challenging. But I would also say, but if you give up on the fact that there is a, an identifiable human nature, if you don't even concede that, then you have no basis to argue for anything in principle. It's all a crapshoot. You like chocolate, I like vanilla. And we'll just have to acknowledge that difference, and both are valid. So 
But, but I do see that even the most belligerent, even the most postmodern, the most uh, materialistic in a philosophical sense person will acknowledge that he or she is engaging in moral reason. Guess what? Everybody distinguishes between good and bad. They just draw the line at different places, huh? Is it an interesting that the, 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 the most activistic enemy of the Christian faith uses the language of should or should not? <laughs> Whoa, where did that come from? You can't do that. You can't use that grammar. You're being inconsistent with your framework. If there are no moral absolutes, if there's nothing fixed, then please, please, LBGT activists, do not tell me you're being inconsistent. So the fact is, and we need, I think, charitably, we need to confront people with their inconsistencies. <laughs> charitably, we need to confront people with the contradictions of their life and their supposed life system. And how do we do that? Yeah, where they live. You know, that's why I use, uh, used earlier tonight the example of the golden rule. That activist affirms that. Well, where did that come from? <laughs> There are no values. It, every value system collapses if there's no human nature, if there's nothing fixed in the universe. Right? So the natural law is important. Now, will they accept your terminology? Well, there I think we need then in creative and winsome ways to find, it, find ways around. If it's a problem of vocabulary, okay. I think, you know... Baptists who only grew up and stay in Baptist conclave probably have difficulty with grammar, right, once they get outside of, or Presbyterians or Dutch Reform or what have you. So natural law discourse is not some philosophical thing that's only the reserve for professionals. No, it's arguing that we have a design. Do you believe that? That we have a nature that doesn't change. Is that nature deformed? Yeah, we've granted that. Has it been marred because of sin? Absolutely. Are its effects universal? Undoubtedly. But that does, not, that does not deny the image of God in him, her, him, her, in the activist, in the hater of your faith. So we appeal on the basis of what is common ground. Now, how we do that, I'm, you're not hearing me tonight suggest, here are the five steps to do that. <laughs> if you're a butcher, you're a baker, you're a candlestick maker, you're a nurse, you're a driver of a hearse, you're a biomedical engineer, you spin mathematical equations, you like working with kids. What are, whatever your gifts and calling are, you're going, to have to, sorry, you're going to have to wrestle with how that's done in the sphere of life to which God has called you, right? And so no five-point pat formula will, will suffice in terms of how we get it done in the culture. But as a tool, and I hate to use that word, it sounds so pragmatic and utilitarian, natural law discourse is a tool. We have to have it in the toolbox. How are we going to establish common ground? Just for, forget moral or social ethics for the. How do you establish common ground with your colleague at work who despises your faith, with an unbelieving family member, with the, the neighbor? How do we establish common ground? Well, charity calls us to take interest in them, love them, right? And that can happen in millions of creative, winsomely motivated ways. And then we trust God to open those doors. Now, not all of us are called to do public policy or to speak on a public platform or to 
or to develop policy or to serve as politicians and diplomats and magistrates. Uh, but for them, the challenge is great, and they're, uh, they're going to have to wrestle with creatively uh, engaging in nat- what I would call natural law, moral reasoning, in ways that uh, are accessible. Yeah. And I just don't have a pill, <laughs> a pat formula, <laughs> a magic wand <laughs> to show you, and here is how it's done. <laughs> Boy, the challenge is great. That was a long-winded non-answer. I am so sorry. <laughs> but I, I applaud you for being part of the uh, fellowship here. Bless you. Yeah. Like that a lot. And the gentleman beside you had his hand up. Thanks for being patient. Right. Uh, um, really appreciate um, the discussion and the candidness that you presented here, too. Thanks. And uh, just a little side note, this gentleman next to me and I have an uh, ongoing discussion about natural law, so you've uh, helped us, I think, um, extend the conversation. But mm-hmm. I would uh, just assert maybe we were saying a little earlier, why isn't Melanchthon remembered as much as Luther? And I would assert maybe it's just because of what you just said that, um, and you might, well, is because it is hard, it is difficult to have that discussion, and it gets lost in the politics and uh, and the urgency of the moment, which Luther was readily uh, stepped well up said. to the plate with, right? Good point. So I think that had a, has a lot to do with it, and um, mm. I would only um, wonder, you, you, you uh, didn't go into it, but could you just touch on maybe one or two things that uh, you would uh, say were... Uh, fall into this category of Lutheran, um, I think you call it purity, or Lutheran... Uh, uh, Pure, kind of a purist attitude. Yeah, purist attitude. Okay. Is, is there one or two things that you would mention there that, that maybe also shed light on what we're talking about here? Because maybe that was a distinction between that, that I think you implied was between Melanchthon and Luther, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah absolutely. Uh, yeah, f- for Luther, there was a, his guard was up... Uh, Negotiating meant compromise. Negotiating not in a negative way, but in terms of debate and dialogue. Uh, That was his tendency, whereas uh, Melanchthon was very much more open to that. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I'm not quite sure how to answer that. Only here is Lutheranism in its early generation. The early generations now, they have to survive. And in Germany, of course, you've got princes who are affirming the faith, so you've got political consequences of this new faith. Uh, and so you've, got, uh, so you've got a battle for what they perceive as orthodox and less than orthodox, right? Or in the, to use the, the common word of the day, heresy. Yeah. And uh, as, as most of you know, the, even the reformers themselves were extremely uncharitable toward, say, Anabaptists and, and uh, non-magisterial types. Uh, I mentioned I, my father's side of the family comes out of the Anabaptist, the Mennonite tradition. Well, that's the way it was from the beginning because the Anabaptists were separatistic. If you've ever read the uh, Schleitheim Confession, 1527, the first formal uh, statement by uh, Anabaptists in terms of what they believe. These are seven or eight articles. It's very short. You just Google uh, Schleitheim Confession. And you'll, you'll read. Every article, though, is separatistic. Uh, that is, drawing a distinct, a thick line between the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of this world. And so you cannot be a magistrate. You cannot be a ruler. 
You cannot be a prince. You cannot be a governor. You cannot be a, 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 any ruler in any sen- sense or form of the word and be a Christian because we're serving two masters, two worlds, right? Christ calls us out of the world, so they thought. And so from the very beginning, and I don't know if in, in Michigan, and perhaps not here in this corner of Michigan, I don't know if you have many Anabaptists, but if you know them, you probably sense that in them. I grew up in Pennsylvania where there are all sorts of them, and many of you have traveled through Lancaster County. When I say that, some of you smile and you know where that is. Yeah. And uh, they are, they were, they have been separatistic from the beginning. That's separation. Uh, so that goes to their roots. Not all, not all were uh, uh, throughout political authority, but many of them disavowed it. Some were radically violent. Münster, for example, okay, uh, do you recall that? Uh, and, and, and many of them had their arguments fanned by Reformation flames. You remember Luther's conundrum, don't you? It was his message of freedom and liberation that was fanning the flames of violence in, the, uh, in these revolts. And so he had to come out and what? Resist, counter counter the revolts because they were throwing uh, political civic authority on its head and basically denying uh, its function. Yeah. So, yes, ma'am. Sorry, forgive me. Thank you. Forgive me here. Uh, Perhaps you've, uh, you may have already answered most of my uh, intrigue here, but uh, the, uh, I'm thinking about the late Phil Reef, uh, so, the sociologist. Right, yeah. yeah. And he wrote his the, the famous Death Works trilogy, the second volume of which was The Crisis of the Officer Class. You know, hmm. we do have power structures uh, that do exert authority over us. Uh, then we read Walker, you know, to change, uh, to change the world and, and his, his quest for a faithful presence. Mm-hmm. We have Vogelin in his New Science of Politics. Uh, talking about the great fragility of the Christian faith, how easily it is sidetracked. This is all by way of leading to my question of Luke 11, verse 52, where Jesus exhoriates the Pharisees and the teachers of the law when he said, you have destroyed knowledge and you have hindered others from finding that knowledge. Now, given that natural law is a developed body of thought. In your opinion, Daryl, what, what do you think Jesus was referring to when he talked to the teachers of the law when he told them, you have destroyed knowledge? Mm. Yeah, that's right, yeah. And uh, I'm assuming they've set time limits on me. Uh, I see some ner- nervous looks here. But... Let's do this one, and then there was one over there. Yeah, well... Th- th- over here, and was there one more? Okay. okay. Boy, I don't know. Uh, I'm going to cop out here. But let's consider the context which gave rise, though, this frequent situation that gave rise to his counter. Matthew 23, of course, devotes among all the evangelists the greatest amount of attention to his clash with established religion, right? Jesus, and, and, uh, and it's only in Matthew do we find this uh, declaration, do not suppose that I've come to uh, abolish the law and the prophets. No, I've not come to abolish both 
fulfill. And whoever removes a jot or a tittle and teaches others to do the same will have the least. So he's engaging, he's using rabbinic language, using rabbinic categories basically to say, you have it, you have it all backwards, right? Yeah. So I think he is, I think Jesus is concerned about their setting aside of the moral law, that is the moral requirements that weigh, that anchor the law. They're more concerned about the letter of the law, right, uh, such as what will, how many steps is, would be too far on the Sabbath, what kind of, you know, this, that. Uh, you tithe, mint, you know, the smallest of the, of the spices, and yet you're oblivious to justice and mercy and issues of law and public policy and what makes for civil society. <laughs> so I think that's his burden. It's rooted in, and they're missing or denying or negating the enduring, the moral, for the sake of the uh, trivial and the narrowly religious. Yes, I think that informs much of his opposition. And because they have a leading influential role in Judaism of first century, boom, they get his wrath, do they not? Yeah. So I think, broadly speaking, uh, that's part of what's in the background there. And I'm probably comfortable leaving it at that. <laughs> Great question. Th- thank you for that one. Yeah. And let's, we can bat it around afterward, too, uh, uh, informally. Yes, ma'am. I'm curious what you think about regarding uh, natural law and Lutheran pietism. Uh, Lutheran pietism. Yes. By that, you mean specifically what? Well, the more pietistic uh, streams of Lutheranism that have often been called anti-intellectual. Um, and I, I, I ask this particularly because my family background at one point was also Mennonite. And then as time went along, they became more towards the pietist end, the evangelical end of the Lutheran church, <clears throat> which has become so hmm. liberal, if I can use that word, um, that I left that end of the church. I see. And so, you know, it's a trajectory that I'm kind of, I'm very curious about. Hmm. Boy, I don't know. Not being not being confessionally Lutheran, I don't feel qualified to answer that thoroughly. But to me, it has been. Uh, I have friends who are a Missouri Synod, Wisconsin. Do you have any Wisconsin Synod folks here in the area? I would think probably. And uh, I don't know if they're more conservative, more pietistic than uh, M- Missouri Synod. To are they okay? Uh, to their great credit, uh, Missouri Synod folks have. Uh, Emphasize scriptural authority, you know. But uh, hey, the intra-Lutheran wars, right, uh, going on over the decades, help perhaps are responsible in part for a pietistic reaction. I don't know, uh, but I, not as uh, because I'm not a historian or a scholar of Lutheranism. Uh, be it in Europe or in America, I, I don't know that I would want to venture beyond that. You know, I'm intrigued by that. I will say this. I haven't met many Wisconsin Synod, but I have met any number of Missouri Synod Lutherans, and they tend not to be very, and this sounds like a criticism, it's not meant to be, it's just an observation, they tend not to be very ecumenically minded. Uh, And and hey, if you're on the vanguard or you believe, and Presbyterians could be the same way, (laughs) okay, if you believe you're on the vanguard and you are the ones who are responsible for, you're holding down the fort, right? then you'll probably be less 
interested in fraternizing with right, mainline liberals, uh, Protestants, Roman Catholics, and so, and so on and so forth. That would probably be your tendency. And my guess is that Missouri said, and, and probably if, if what you're suggesting is true, uh, Wisconsin said, and perhaps other pietistic types, my guess is that you, it, it's not only the culture, the broader culture, but it's also the intra-Lutheran wars that have been going on uh, for uh, quite a long time. You do have Lutheran, you, have, you do have in Germany, uh, German Lutheran pietism, which you can trace to this day in certain parts of Germany. You will find pockets, communities of pietists. You'll note they don't dress like Amish, but they all, they dress the same. They dress very plain. And uh, there are externals that identify them to one another and to others. Yeah. They are not to be confused with what's called the free church in Germany. The free church is the sort of catch-all for everything that's not Lutheran and Catholic, the two state churches, right? Now, I don't mean that uh, pejoratively. That's just, so if you're Baptist, Pentecostal, uh, Presbyterian, I don't know if there's a Presbyterian in Germany today, anything other than Lutheran, then you're free church. Yeah, yeah. And it has nothing to do with the, what, the free church in Deerfield, Illinois. The, right, is that the free church? Evangelical free, yeah, it's nothing to do with that, yeah. So it's just a, so that's where uh, pietism today is in, in Germany. You can find that. There's still pockets of that. Uh, and, of course, many of you are thinking perhaps of great German pietist scholars back in the 16 and 1700s who were very, very influential, some of whom had universities named after them. <laughs> I'm thinking of one right now, yeah. So... Uh, very important in our in the Protestant uh, history, but German. Back to your original intent, perhaps in the prior question, German purism. Yeah, again, Lutheranism had to establish itself over against the Church as it was understood and existed in that day, didn't it? And now, and then for the rest of the 1500s and through the 1600s, it had to assert itself. And so you had a hardening, I think, uh, that's my uh, language, a hardening then of Lutheran attitudes toward others. Presbyterians went through the same. Uh, but you had a hardening of attitudes. And then you had various reactions. Uh, 100 becomes 200 years, becomes 250, becomes 300. And so then you have split-offs, pietistic reactions, right, uh, to what you don't like in the church, or you have acquiescence to the world and the culture. As you probably know, all the universe, all pastors uh, in Germany today, they're, they are prepared, they're educated at the state university. There is no such thing as a seminary. There are a couple, what we would call Bible schools here or there spread out around the land, but if you are in the Landeskirche, if you're Lutheran, German Lutheran, uh, then you study theologie, at the university, and it's a secular uh, marketplace. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you, you do have what we would understand to be evangelicals, and you do have Catholics who obviously, uh, uh, Joseph Ratzinger being a prime example, who take their faith very seriously. I'm not about to predict what tomorrow holds for either of those camps, what the church hold, what the tomorrow holds for the church in Germany. Uh, which is not to say it's not important. I just don't, don't have that insight, uh, though it, I care about it uh, a great deal. Yeah. I'm saddened, and this will be my last comment, I'm saddened about American Lutheranism, since we're talking about Lutherans. Uh, gee, 
I mentioned earlier that you, are, you can scarcely identify a single Protestant theological ethicist who has been a champion of natural law. I can think of two. Who can you think of? I'm thinking of one, Carl Broughton. And again, if you're not Lutheran, uh, and that name won't mean anything. Carl Broughton has taught at the seminary le- level for many years, was a co-founder of uh, the Center for Evangelical uh, Theology, uh, which gave birth to a journal, Pro Ecclesia, about 20, 25 years ago. And Carl Broughton also is a prolific writer and editor of books, and I'll bring up the second name in this regard. Carl Broughton is a, a close friend of a Robert Jensen, Robert W. Jensen. They're both in their 80s today. Both have been valiant witnesses within mainline Lutheranism in the American context and advocates for natural law. But outside of them, I can't think of a well-known Lutheran. (laughs) I can't think of a well-known Protestant who's been a champion of natural law. But praise the Lord, it's my hope and prayer that that's changing and that among younger types who don't have all that baggage. Now, their problem is they depreciate a theological foundation. (laughs) So that's the challenge today. Look, with Dorothy Sayers, look, the dogma is the drama. (laughs) Look, your life does depend on it. And the church's vitality in life does depend on it. So it's basic, you know, what we have to teach today and even evangelically minded churches don't seem and again this sounds terribly patronizing and pejorative but I'm not very sanguine about broader evangelicalism today Uh, I am about uh, dialogue interconfessional dialogue Catholic Protestant dialogue and usually those are uh, evangelical types and Roman Catholics I mentioned John Paul II and Benedict I'm a real fan of theirs I mean, not just because they were prolific and pumped out more encyclicals than any of their predecessors and probably any of their followers, but because what they had to say every two, three years was a strong statement about the culture and what the church should be doing for the culture. Robert Jensen, and I really will stop with this comment. I was lying before. Robert Jensen, in uh, one, of, one essay, posed the question, and it was the title of a chapter in one of the books that he and Broughton co-wrote. It may be on your bibliography. The title of the book, it's worth, you need to have it in your library. It's called uh, Two Cities of God, The Two Cities of God. And, of course, there they're borrowing from uh, Augustine's metaphor. Okay, We've got two citizenships. City of God, city of man. Yes, when push comes to shove, uh, Trey, you heard it last week in Seattle, when push comes to shove, yes, our allegiances are ultimate. You know. But that does not mean that the other citizenship is unimportant. I like that. Yeah. So we have to have our ultimate allegiances, but that doesn't mean that we negate that second allegiance to the city of man. We do all that we can in creative, winsome, charitable ways. And sometimes that's going to require confrontation. So it's not just about peace and love and being uh, meek, mild. No. We're going to have to be confrontive. I'm sorry. When the LGBTQII, the, the, the letters keep being added on, you know, activists is in your face. You've got to confront <laughs> Now, I think there's a way to confront, right? 
charity, we have to clothe our confrontation in ways that are accessible, right? <laughs> but it doesn't mean that we won't be confronting. Uh, there will be a lot of confronting that we're going to have to do. And so uh, may the Lord uh, help us in that task. Uh, but uh, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And, hey, if we have to go through, and I think I raised this question uh, uh, last week, if the church, if the culture has to go, if the church has to go through, what do you think of this? Several generations of darkness? Now, now I sound like Tim LaHaye or, or uh, uh, you know, left behind, right? Uh, everything's going to hell in a handbasket. Let's hold on until Jesus comes. No. I'm simply saying... The reality is that Christians have to suffer. Oh, boy, that's a theme. for. The, I bet you haven't heard many sermons from your uh, pulpit on the, the normality and the necessity of suffering. And, uh, but we're going to have to take that seriously. And uh, what if, what if, what if the church is on the outside for a couple generations? Perish the thought, huh? Who knows the mind of God? Uh, but the cultural climate has changed, and maybe it'll continue to move in that direction. Now, that doesn't mean we give up. It means all the more the vision of Acton Institute, we redouble our efforts, trust in the sovereignty of God, and be faithful in the use of our gifts. To some, he's given 10, to some 5, to some 2, to some 1. The issue is not number. The issue is not visibility. The issue is faithfulness, as Mother Teresa taught us, right? Not success, not numbers, but faithfulness. Blessings to you. Thank you for being here tonight. The mission of the Acton Institute is to promote a free and virtuous society characterized by individual liberty and sustained by religious principles. For more information on the programs and activities of the Acton Institute, visit our website at www.acton.org.